Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be at work in each of us, enabling us to receive these ancient words afresh for our lives today. We thank you that your word is alive and active, and so we pray that these weeks in the book of Ruth would renew our joy, strengthen our faith in you, and be grounded in your hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It takes tremendous courage to leave the land that you've always lived in and permanently move to another land. Some of you know what that is like. For us who were at the Afghan tea last year, we heard stories of of what it takes. It means saying goodbye to your home country, friends and family. Often facing a death-defying journey. And then once you arrive, learning to be in another country, another culture, another language. It takes tremendous courage. A few years ago, I was working as a pastoral carer at Peter Mac Cancer Centre in the city. And I got to meet a lovely Greek man. Um, I'll call him Theo. And over the course of a few catch-ups, uh, Theo, he told me the journey, the story of his life, uh, including his family's incredible trip all the way to Australia back in the 50s. For Theo's mother, making the courageous journey to Australia all those years ago, it was fueled by the, the expectation or the, the hope of a better life on the horizon. I mean, she had no way of knowing what awaited her and her family. But there was that hope, that expectation that things would be better. And at least for Theo and his family, things were better. And he rejoiced in our catch-ups at the, the blessing of living here with his family and eventually his wife coming over from, uh, from Egypt to join them as well. But for every story like Theo's, I know there are many stories that are not like this. Life in a distant country can be worse, not better. Loved ones don't survive the journey people getting imprisoned or detained along the way, former experience and qualifications back at home not being recognised and meaning nothing, family, family members passing away back home and, and not being able to do a thing about it. Years going by and still husbands and wives and parents stuck over the other side of the world with no idea if they will ever get here. Well, for the next four weeks, we are following the journey of one migrating family as they go from from hardship to tragedy to poverty. And yet, 
even in the darkest chapter, they will experience God's loving kindness and hope. Over these weeks in Ruth, uh, we will experience a God who is at work in the joys and hardships of life and even the seemingly mundane experiences. Uh, And so whether your life right now at this point is full of joy or full of hardship or a bit of both, I believe God's word here in Ruth is for each of us where we are at. Now, as we saw in the video just before, uh, the book of Ruth, it is beautifully divided into four chapters, uh, almost like acts or scenes uh, in, in a theatrical production. Uh, and so we've called, uh, called Act 1, Ruin and Return. And so I do want to encourage you to have a, a copy of the passage available to you, uh, whether it's on your phone or we do have some Bibles just out in the foyer as well. Uh, we don't have any uh, slides with the passage on it for, t- for today. But I do, want, I do want to encourage you to have that so you can look around. Uh, it's uh, really important to be able to see God's Word for yourself. And so right at the start of the book, we see that the events of Ruth, they take place in the days when the judges ruled. These were dark times. And if you haven't read the book of Judges for yourself, uh, it, it is immediately before, before Ruth in your Bibles. So very easy to find if you've found Ruth. But I must warn you, it's really full on. It gives a stark window into a society when every person is living for themselves with little regard for others and a wholehearted devotion to God seems like it was a distant memory. It was the Wild West, if you will, every person for themselves, and it was a dangerous time, and it was particularly dangerous for women. And the events of Ruth, it it takes place in this period of time, and what's worse is not only is the nation of Israel not a thriving place to live, but verse 1 says that there is also a famine in the land. So crops are dead, livestock is thinning away, food is scarce. No doubt people would be stealing from one another. It is not a safe place to live. Well, verse 1, it continues. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So we meet the family, Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, Marlon and Kilion. And they're living in Bethlehem, the the same town that Jesus was born in many, many years later. And often in the Bible, the names of things um, carry a certain significance. Uh, And so the name um, um, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Uh, Beth or Beth um, means house, uh, typically. Uh, And so Bethlehem, house of bread. And yet for this family in this time of famine, the house of bread is reduced to a pile of crumbs. 
and so desperate to survive, the family made the big decision to move to the foreign land of Moab, to the east of the Jordan River. And so far in the Bible's storyline, Israel and Moab, well, they've got a slightly complicated relationship, to say the least. Like on the one hand, the Israelites were not to provoke or fight the Moabites as they were the descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. It says that in Genesis and in Deuteronomy. And yet by the time of Judges, for several reasons and several things that have gone on, the Moabites were now viewed as the sworn enemies of Israel. And particularly in Judges. You know, they were the shameful ones you don't talk about. And yet Elimelech, he takes his family from their land in Israel to live in the land of Moab for a while, it says. And it probably wasn't their intention originally, but they ended up staying there for 10 years. They laid down roots in Moab. The sons married local women. And we actually aren't told whether the move to Moab was a right decision or not, nor are we told whether the decision to, for the sons to marry um, local uh, Moabite people was the right thing to do or not. But in either case, this family, they move away from their land to avoid hardship and ruin, but in a few short years, that is exactly what they experience. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth, and after they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahalot and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. In the space of a few short years, the family experienced two weddings and three funerals. Limelech dies first, followed by both his sons. No details are actually given about any of these deaths. We're just given a rapid-fire summary of the ruin that this family experienced. And as Naomi sees her family fall apart before her eyes, the narrator slows down now to focus on her story. See, the, the opening verses have shown us this family's ruin, and now the rest of the chapter invites us to see and follow their return. Uh, and in the original Hebrew, uh, the word for go back or return, uh, shavu or shu, it, it, it appears like 12 times in these verses. Uh, that's like more than once per verse, pretty much. Uh, and what the writer of Ruth wants us to notice is that Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are all going back to something. They are, they are each returning to, to something in one way or another. And so, Lynn, let's look at each of their returnings. And I wonder which of these resonates most with where you are at right now in your life. Well, first we have Naomi's return. Well, how are things at this point looking for Naomi? Well, to be frank, she is utterly 
without hope. On top of the grief that her husband and kids have died, she is utterly without economic hope too. See, there's no job keeper or superannuation saved up to tap into back then. Like, how, how will she survive economically? Well, she's, she's got three options, really. So first, well, she could, she could go to work in the fields, but she's too old for that. Second, she could get remarried, but no one's going to want to remarry her. No one's going to want to marry her. Because in those days, and still in many parts of the world today, like marriage wasn't primarily for companionship or pleasure or love. People married in order to produce a family. Like it was about raising heirs, securing inheritance to continue your legacy and your family name. But Naomi, she's too old to have kids. Like she says in verse 12, like, I'm too old to have another husband and give birth to sons. Like she knows she's not having any more kids. So she could work, but she can't work. She's too old. So she could get married. Well, no, she, she can't marry. She's too old to have more children. The only other thing was to have your children support you in your old age as they worked. But her children are all dead. She's only got two non-Israelite daughters-in-law, neither of whom had any children themselves. And so they might as well go and live a new life, get married, start a new life somewhere else. And in verse 12, Naomi tells them that even if I thought there was still hope for me, and later in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Like she was economically without hope. She was spiritually and emotionally without hope. In that society, she was deprived of, of anything and everything that can give you meaning. She even hates her own name, Naomi, which, which means pleasant. She wants people to call her Mara, which means bitter. Like that's where she is at. She had she had Absolutely nothing, because she had no family, no money, no name. She had no significance. Naomi was completely without hope. But hope is on the way. Verses 6 and 7. When Naomi had heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Naomi, she hears that the famine in Israel is over. She hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people. God has provided food for them. Uh, he provided, literally, it says he provided bread for them. And so Bethlehem, the house of bread, is now being restocked. And this is momentous news that even in the time of the judges, 
God had not given up on his people. And for Naomi, the provision by God is the sign that it's it's her time now to return home. And so she packs her things, gets ready and makes her way to Bethlehem along with her two daughters-in-law. And as Naomi makes her way back to Bethlehem, in verses 8 to 15, we then see Orpah's return. See, both Orpah and Ruth, they follow Naomi as she heads back to Israel. But with their husbands gone, well, Naomi feels that they're not obligated to her anymore. Like, there's, there's nothing for them back home in Judah. And so Naomi, she doesn't want to drag them down to her level of ruin and hopelessness. So in a series of conversations, uh, she convinces Ruth and Orpah to return, to go back to their old way of life. And if you think about it, Naomi's reasoning here is actually pretty compelling. See, first she gives them Yahweh's blessing, the Lord's blessing, and releases them for remarriage. You're still young enough. Go make a life for yourself. Return to your mothers and you find new husbands. So she wants what's best for them. But instead of going back to their people, or Orpah and Ruth, they want to stay with Naomi and go back with her. And so second, rather than a blessing for uh, releasing them, Naomi, she now gives an impassioned plea about why the women should not go back with her. Uh, In Deuteronomy 25, there's this custom described where if a married man dies without an heir, well, his widow was then to marry his brother. And so that if that particular marriage then produced a son, well, then that son would then carry on the family name and inheritance of that original husband who died. And it was a way of ensuring that tribes and families didn't go extinct, basically. And so in the case of Naomi, her daughters, daughters-in-law, these widows, well, then they should marry Naomi's other sons. But her only two sons have died, along with her husband. Uh, and so in verse, verses 11 to 13, Naomi, she goes to the women, look, I, I'm not married, and, and, and even, if, even if I could have more sons, which I can't, but even if I could have more sons, they'll be babies. Like, like by the time my future sons grew up, you'd probably be too old to marry them and have kids anyway. Look, look, look. I'm sorry, but there's just no way that you can help me and my family name. So, so, so please, please, please just go back to your people. Leave me be. And verse 14 says, they all wept. Grief from the losses of the past. Anticipatory grief for Naomi's future. Grief at the final parting of a dying family line. And as if that wasn't enough, 
Naomi, Naomi, she adds the final trump card in verse 13. The Lord God himself has turned against me. See, in her mind, Yahweh is now her enemy. And it's not clear at this point whether Naomi is expressing lament and faith or rebellion against God. Um, But based on what we do see of Naomi in the rest of the book, I'm convinced that she never once loses faith in Yahweh. So in that moment of ruin, she recognizes that her God is sovereign and in control of all the events of all this. God is still God, even if I don't get it, even if he deals me in an unbelievably challenging hand. And after this, for the first time, Orpah and Ruth, they part. Orpah weeps and she kisses Naomi goodbye and she goes back to her people. Orpah, she returns to her old way of life in Moab. And if you are looking at the text, um, notice that Orpah is never criticised or condemned for her choice here. That might be surprising. And I think that's because for, for any of us, if we were in that situation, it's a completely reasonably, sensible, understandable choice to make. But then by contrast, an extreme contrast, we have Ruth's return. Verses 14 and 15, they wept aloud again, but, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her, to Naomi. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Orpah returns, but Ruth does not. She, she clings to Naomi. And the Hebrew word here, the clings word, is the exact same one that is used in Genesis 2.24 when it says, therefore a mother, oh, sorry, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Even before Ruth says anything, her commitment to Naomi is as strong as the bonds of marriage. And as Ruth responds, she beautifully declares that she is going back, not to Moab and its gods, but going back with Naomi and Yahweh. From verse 16, she beautifully says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, that's Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. They're beautiful words, aren't they? We sometimes hear these at weddings. In fact, I heard them at my own wedding. Um, Emily and I had our wedding anniversary during the week, uh, and and, and I'm reminded that, that, yeah, that 
on our wedding day, Emily shared those same words to me as a commitment. And for Ruth, saying these sort of words as a commitment to Naomi, like what an amazing demonstration of extraordinary loyalty, kindness and love. Uh, One writer, Frederick Bush, says about these words, uh, he says, Ruth's pledge encompasses not only every living action, but extends to the end of life itself, even in the place where they are buried and will be united. Her commitment to Naomi transcends even the bonds of racial origin and national religion. Naomi's people and Naomi's God will henceforth be hers. And giving a ring of truth to her words, then she immediately takes the name Yahweh on her lips in a solemn oath that only death itself will finally separate them. And through the unfolding story in in the book of Ruth, Ruth's commitment here to go back with Naomi, it's held as the prime example of, of a Hebrew term, hesed, a hesed is a word that mostly in the Old Testament appears in the Psalms, although it appears in nearly every book um, of the Old Testament, particularly the first half. And it's a word that hesed, it's a, no, it's a word that's normally used to describe God's relationship with his people. See, hesed, it, it, it encapsulates extravagant, costly, covenantal, faithful, loving kindness. If you can bundle all that into one word. (laughs) Yahweh is a God of hesed to his people. And here in Ruth, in the time of the judges, where every person was living for themselves, A non-Israelite foreigner expresses that same level of loving, covenantal commitment to a poor old woman and expecting nothing in return. Right near the end of the book of Ruth, the town, they offer these words of praise to Naomi and they say to her, your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you is better to you than seven sons. Ruth's loyalty and love to Naomi, it's unexpected, it's extraordinary, and it's beautiful. And so Act 1 of Ruth closes. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And as the first act of Ruth comes to an end, I want to invite you to consider where you think you might be in this story. Like it's, it's a new year, there's, there's new things on the horizon. Maybe you're making some commitments, some personal goals, some commitments for the coming 12 months. Well, Naomi, Orpah and Ruth... They each returned to something. I wonder to what or to where you are returning this year. Perhaps you feel like Naomi. You've been in a period of hardship and tragedy. 
And maybe you feel like it's time that you return back to a, a closeness or intimacy with God that maybe you once had. Back to a community of faith. Back to something that you left long ago. Well, the message of Ruth is that even in the darkest place, when you are at your lowest, God is still there with you. And if God is there, there is always hope. Or maybe you're feeling like Orpah. You've experienced life with Jesus, but you're feeling this pull to return back to your old way of life, and maybe it's God's, whatever that might be. Maybe you're trying to work out what direction your life really should take. Maybe you're feeling torn between faith and and everything else. Or I'm wondering if maybe you're feeling that, that this year it's time to be like Ruth. Like some of us here, God is calling you to costly, bold, extravagant faithfulness this year. He's calling us to go all in with God and his mission this year, till death do us part. You know, maybe you've been dipping your toes in the water. Maybe you've been watching from a distance. But this year, this is the year that he wants you to go deeper, to throw in your lot with him, no turning back, as we're going to be singing in a moment. And as I've been reflecting on this chapter, the big question that I've been really challenged by personally is this, what is the biggest risk that you've ever taken for God? What is the biggest risk that you have ever taken from God? Well, Ruth, she took a massive risk for God. Not only did it involve leaving everything behind and throwing in her lot with, with God. But, but she could have never anticipated how, how Yahweh could have taken care of her and Naomi. But her commitment, her, her hesed to, to Yahweh became, becomes a stage in this theatrical uh, story for God to act mightily, mightily and redemptively. And of course, for us who live on this side of Christmas, Ruth's actions they point ahead to a moment when Yahweh did act mightily and redemptively. See, in the same town that Naomi and Ruth returned to, God himself descended from the throne room of heaven and became cosmically foreign, cosmically poor, as he was born in the Bethlehem dust. In Jesus' birth, his life, his death and resurrection, God expresses ultimate hesed to us. Loving, extravagant, costly commitment to his people. Uh, and as, as the, uh, the band joins me uh, now, uh, Ruth 1, it, it, it looks ahead to this moment when Jesus says to each one of us, I won't leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I am becoming a person like you so that my heavenly family can now be yours too. 
I am willing to die and be buried for you. I'm throwing away my life so that you will never be alone again. And I will die so that not even death will separate you from the love of God. And that commitment, that love, that loyalty that God shows us is something that's worth clinging on to for the rest of our lives, isn't it? And so we're now going to spend some time in worship and in prayer. And so please stand as we sing to our God of extravagant, costly love.